This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Capital live across... Listen to The Cable. Why do I do this? Do you know what I was looking forward to, guys, so much as well? Send, send happy birthday. Thanks, mate. I just in my mind, I was like, you're listening to The Cable live across The Capital on DAB Digital Radio on this beautiful Monday. A happy birthday to my good friend, co-anchor and colleague, Guy Johnson. The older you get, the less they count, I think. Or maybe you just want to forget about them. It's maybe. either one way or the other. But actually, I've had a pretty nice day. So it's it's nice to have a birthday at the start of the year. Yeah. The rest of the year is yours. Uh, yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. Still in the 40s? Just. <laughs> I know you are. I'm only joking. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm not that far, but no. But I'm, <laughs> it's nearly over. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's definitely nearly over. Can we do, a, can we do a, a special New York subway happy birthday for... The Guy Johnson, Charlie. Stand clear of the happy birthday dude, I guess. Is that is stand, it, stand that, clear of the happy birthday it, dude? It, it, I, that's yeah. the best I could do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Okay. I'm definitely staying over here for my future birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Mind the gap between you and everybody else. Oh. Oh. Charlie. No, he's young. 29th birthday. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. Yeah. It's it, it, it's, it's right, 30, well, well, 30's tough. 30s, yeah, 30s, well, well, the 30s are tough. What are you going to celebrate? Remember. <laughs> what am I doing? I celebrated over the weekend. I had a very nice weekend with my Good. family. But Good. Uh, yeah, we're done with that now. Well, congratulations, Guy. You have a lovely day. Um, stocks lower at the close. The FTSE down nine tenths of 1%. Lower in the United States as well. Uh, Citigroup hardly getting off, us off to the greatest start uh, for earnings season, Guy. But it's really the data front and centre out of Europe and China that's weighing on sentiment throughout the whole of the session. Yeah, can you see, I, I'm trying to work this out today because I, I kind of look at these stories today and I look at them and I think, you know what, all this is going to encourage both sides in the trade war in particular to do is to get their act together. So is bad news good news today? And if so, why is the market not taking it that way? Because I, would have, I, I look at this and I think, particularly on the Chinese side, but the, but the US is in the same boat as well. I, the the kind of the need to get a deal is rising and rising and rising, but the market hasn't taken it that way. Yeah, no, and I agree with you guys to a certain degree that this should bring the Chinese to the table, but I think that's been a story for the last six months, yeah, hasn't it? I agree, but the, the evidence just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. Uh, and I, I think some of this too. this was front run to a certain extent because so, of the way that the the trade data has worked and people so trying think, to get the deals in first. I think the market globally has done a pretty good job of getting ahead of the the weakness that we've seen in Europe and in China. I actually think the big unknown for 2019 is the potential for spillover from China in the Eurozone into the United States. The data looks okay for now, yep. but that's the big risk going into 19. It's just how big is the deceleration in China? Have we underestimated the deceleration in China? Certainly the Apple numbers would speak to an underestimation of that. It, and, and, yep. and what's the spillover look like? We'll talk about that in a minute, because I'm curious to find out how quickly, if the Chinese decide they do want to hit the, the gas, do want to stimulate their economy, what does the lag look like? Uh, and the lag then into the United States as well via Europe. Let's get the headlines with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. Jonathan was talking about Citigroup. Shares are higher today. We did hear from Citigroup this morning, kicking off U.S. bank earnings. Shares up now by almost 4%. Citigroup offering some hope that the worst is over for its bond trading business after the toughest quarter for that unit in 
in seven years. The UK government's calling in senior executives from banking giants Barclays, Lloyds and Banco Santander to help it combat financial crime. The new Economic Crime Strategic Board will meet twice a year to help set priorities and direct resources for tackling money laundering, bribery, corruption and fraud. Let's make a deal in the gold industry. Newmont Mining buying rival Gold Corp in a deal valued at $10 billion, creating the world's largest gold miner and cementing a return of M&A to the industry. It is the biggest deal in the gold mining industry's history. Right now we've got Newmont's U.S. shares down 8%, but Gold Corp rallying 7.6%. Latest from the news desk, back to you. Charlie, thank you. Thank you very much. So, Guy, you wanted to pick up where we left off, so, so let's do that. Let's talk about that Chinese growth story. And I guess the big upside risk, and I put the emphasis on upside risk, is that they do exactly what you think, which is they throw even more stimulus at the situation. Incrementally, we have seen that over the last 12 months. It doesn't seem like we've had enough, though, to really turn this story around. Probably not yet. Um, but we've got some potentially really big events coming up. You've got the kind of big Chinese party conclave coming up. That could see the opportunity to maybe make that happen. Uh, today, we did get further incremental evidence that that is happening. The Chinese have come out and doubled uh, the foreign investment uh, opportunities into the Chinese markets. That's just another factor that could potentially drive money to work in the Chinese equity story. Just kind of incrementally, day by day, there just seems to be another piece of evidence that the Chinese are ramping it up. Um, and maybe you need to take a step back, maybe one needs to take a step back and kind of wait to see how big the uh, the ultimate sort of story will, will be. Let's bring in Michael Hewson. He's the Chief uh, Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Michael, how do you see uh, what is happening in China? The data are clearly bad. Uh, we've seen the latest piece of evidence coming through today in the form of the trade data. Uh, the import story was just dramatic. The drop-off there was really kind of really bad. When did the Chinese pull the trigger and really deliver some solid stimulus? Well, I think obviously we got a clue about it last week, didn't we, with the... Um the triple R cut and I think that really should have clued us in that we were going to get a poor number but even I was surprised at how poor the number was but I mean we have we have seen clues in the car market um, you know used car new car sales are at 20 year low um, obviously you you mentioned Apple John and the uh, and the profits warning there so I would suggest that the Chinese do have scope to throw more money at it. I think the big question is at the moment with all the uncertainties around trade, um, I think they want to avoid acting prematurely in the event that the trade talks or some form of accommodation doesn't go according to plan. So for me, I think the likely approach is to be a combined approach, i.e. come to some form of arrangement with the US that allows inward investment into China because I noted that that was also a very poor number as well as some form of stimulus plan, either a further triple R cut or an actual cut in short-term lending rates. Putting all that together, Michael, when is the point at which you would be comfortable taking international risk again? Because first in, first out is the scenario that Morgan Stanley are thinking about. Who was first in to the, uh, the rolling bear market, as they put it? It was emerging markets. They expect mm. emerging markets to be first out as well. And I'm hearing a lot more people be constructive on the China-Asia EM story than maybe they were a month ago. I think a large part of that, John, is down to perceptions about a weaker dollar. And I think the directional, the direction of the dollar, I think, could well determine that outcome. Um, certainly the direction of US rate rises. I heard a guest on one of your programs today talk about the prospect 
of two further US rate rises this year. I simply can't see that happening. You know, I was on, on the show last week talking to you and I suggested to you that ultimately the next move in rates could be lower. I certainly don't think we're there yet. But I, th- I think that okay. in the middle it- of this year, towards the end of this year, markets could start to price in a rate cut as early as December from the Federal Reserve. And does that assume no trade deal? If you get a trade deal, does, does that no, no, narrative I change? It, I think it assumes some form of deal. Whether or not it's a trade deal is a moot point, because how do you define a trade deal? OK, by? let's call it a trade truce. If we get yeah. some sort of trade truce between, yeah. between Washington and Beijing, is that enough for the Fed to go again? I don't think it is, because I think there's a wider slowdown at play here. If you look at the economic data, not only in China, but also across Europe and Japan, looking at that export data, we saw a slowdown of exports to Japan, to Germany. Um, We've seen some horrible industrial production data out of Europe over the course of the past week or so. So I think I'd I'd would look to see for more evidence of a pickup globally. And at the moment, I think there's a good chance that Japan is in recession at the end of last year. Q3 was a minus 2.3. I think it's likely we could see a negative GDP print in Q4. And ultimately, I think Germany could be in a technical recession at the end of next year, as well as Italy. So for me, I still think there are too many risks, too many risks. Michael Hewson, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets, alongside Guy Johnson and I, sticking with us next up on the programme, Brexit and a big vote. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. Just about 24 hours to go until the big votes in the House of Commons tomorrow relating to Theresa May's withdrawal bill. Um, If you take a look at the stories that have done the rounds today, the expectation is that she's going to lose that. The question is, by how much? John, there's also a story knocking around that the government may adopt an amendment that would effectively put a time limit on Brexit, sorry, the Brexit um, backstop, without asking Brussels. So what you may find tomorrow is that MPs vote on a deal that is not even on offer from the EU, which really gets us into the (laughs) realms of kind of bizarreness. Okay, how many people have you met that thinks the Prime Minister stays on once she loses this vote tomorrow? I, I... I don't know. Well, actually, I think a lot of people are still constantly stunned by Theresa May's ability to survive this. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has said he will uh, pursue a vote of no confidence, but only when the time suits him correctly, uh, i.e. he has a chance of winning. So who knows? She's got until Monday to come back with a plan B, but what on earth plan B will look like? There's also this idea during the rounds that uh, Parliament will seize back control of the Brexit process and the Brexit process will be put in the hands of senior MPs, but not the government. Michael Hewson, does she walk away? You know, I don't think it matters really who's Prime Minister at this point in time, to be quite honest. So dysfunctional is UK politics. And I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's being slightly disingenuous about calling a no-confidence vote because ultimately, even if he were to do so, I'm not really sure that he would win it. And his Brexit plans are even more opaque than the government's Brexit plans. It's very easy to oppose. It's not as easy to come up with an alternative. And I was listening to him on the BBC at the weekend. And ultimately, I don't think he has got any plan going forward for how to break the deadlock. And let's not forget, John, you know, the status quo or the standstill position at the moment is we leave with no deal. 
as things stand. Government, the executive, would have to enact legislation to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Do you not think... I, what seems to have definitely changed to me, though, for Michael, is today is that even the Prime Minister is basically saying that a no-deal is off the table. Do you not think that that is now a, a an option that is that is fading into the distance because of the fact that most MPs will so, not allow that to happen, that some sort of legislation will be will be passed to, to, to prevent that happening? Where's the majority for that guy? Because I'm not sure where it's going to come from. Um, I, I, well, the, OK, the sense seems to be that there is a majority for a no-deal Brexit. That's certainly what Theresa that, May said today. That, I mean, she says there is, but I look at any number of scenarios. We know what the... We, we, need, we know what MPs don't want. They don't want May's deal and they don't want a no-deal Brexit. But of all the alternatives that have been touted, there isn't a majority for any of them. So how are you going to get a whole disparate bunch of MPs who don't agree on an awful lot to come together to agree that there won't be a no-deal Brexit? And putting aside all this nonsense about a people's vote, a second referendum... The EU would only allow us to extend Article 50 in the event that there was a general election. And ultimately, I'm not sure the mathematics of a general election would really change that much, because ultimately, either side would have to campaign on a leave or a remain mandate. What are your thoughts on the uh, the speech in the West Midlands today? An audience of, of leavers and basically her message is the biggest risk right now isn't a no-deal Brexit. It's no Brexit at all. Yeah, but again, that leads back to MPs having to reverse the primary legislation which they voted for, for the UK, the UK, the UK to leave the European Union. And yes, everyone, everyone I listen to is saying that a no-deal Brexit has become much less likely. And I myself thought that about a month ago. But when I actually look at the MPs, I'm struggling to come up with a reason as to why you get 316 of them to actually reverse the outcome of the Brexit vote, the Article 50. We will find out tomorrow. Plenty of great coverage coming up. Uh, we are going to be basically be camped out tomorrow down at Westminster uh, on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Uh, we're going to bring you some great coverage. Keir Starmer, we think, is going to join us first thing tomorrow morning, so we'll get his take. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Just get a smaller plate. I, I just don't understand that, Guy. The Italian is about to come out in John. No, I just don't get it. Just yeah. you don't eat less. Eat, eat less. What's the problem? Why do you have to use your hands? What? I guess it depends how. Yeah, I guess the hand size maybe also kind of is there oh, is a relativity on. with. Yeah. Come on, I ate pasta all the time when I was a kid, and there wasn't much of me, guy. No, I suspect you've run around a lot. I run around loads, but what's stopping everyone else? We could get into this debate. It's a one I would find fairly easy to uh, agree with you on. I we could. I mean, I just like, if people want to eat and they want to overeat, let them. And if they don't want to, they don't have to. But telling me we've got to start. Okay. We've got to start using our hands. I think the issue here is actually you can bring this back to economics. The the economics, uh, and particularly when you've got a national health service, um, 
the the economics of this are quite important because of the fact that uh, people being overweight and obese does have a meaningful knock-on effect uh, into the propensity for them to get heart disease, for them to get cancers, um, all kinds of things. Diabetes, obviously, is a factor as well. And there is a knock-on effect that does come back into the NHS and, and into, the, into the tax take uh, in terms of the way that the government is funded. So you can draw a line between this and what we spend most of our time talking about, which is people eating too much, and us being taxed too much. So make healthier food cheaper. You know, that's yep, the only answer that, to, to I agree, all of yeah. this. So, so that I, and this comes back to, obviously, what we at Bloomberg spend a lot of time talking about. Yeah, the economics of it. Marcus Houston's fascinated by it, isn't he? I am, because I yeah. only sort of came in halfway through the conversation, so I'm sort of picking up threads of what you're talking about. He was eating about. a chocolate bar off air. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got a um, glass of Ribena on my desk. Nice. And a chocolate bar. Full sugar. Um, yes, full sugar. Good for you. Yeah. Good for Rich you. in vitamin C, though, John. Oh, of course, yes. Good of course, for this time of year. That's, that's why you have cold. Ribena. Yeah. I used to have a hot Ribena. Oh, I yeah. Do. I, have them, I have them too. Hot I Ribena, too. good stuff. Used to go out on a golf course. Mum would make a flask of hot Ribena. Did it improve your game? Nope. <laughs> you kept your hands warm. <laughs> Could right? never get my golf game together. I was either a great driver, and on the same day I'd have a terrible approach and a terrible <laughs> short game. I think uh, most people probably find that, yeah. And then my short game would come together and I just couldn't get it together off the tee. This would happen every time I played. Playing yep. iron off the tee. No, but even then, even then, Mike, it just didn't happen. I'd hit, hit a great low iron off the tee and then just mm. my short irons weren't working. It's concentration, and that's kind of where you come back to having a lot of food in your system when you're playing golf, because I always find that if I, if I don't eat on a golf course, by the time I get to about the 14th, Kind of, I'm toast. Yeah, I just like. Playing, I need some toast. I just like playing nine holes anyway. Thought yep. eighteen was always too much. Yeah. Then you go back into the clubhouse, you chill for a bit, and then you play another nine. That yeah. sounds like That's a how plan. golf should be played. Um, <laughs> should we talk about the data, gents, out of Europe? Yes. Pretty indeed. ugly guy looking at this. Industrial production to close out the year is not looking good, is it? Uh, again, I think there's. I think the, the the back end of last year is really interesting, isn't it? I, that's when it all seems to start to get really crunchy. And we were talking about the China data a little bit earlier on. The link between the Chinese economy and and Chinese and German industrial production is a pretty solid one. Um, and it's I think pretty and noisy I think that, though, guys, isn't it? it? It is pretty noisy. But you look at you talk to the German exporters and you look at kind of where are their major markets. China's a pretty big one, and the Chinese data was clearly having a very bumpy period at that point. The bigger question now is kind of does 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 Germany end up in recession before the United States? And I think increasingly it is looking likely. I think they already are, guy. Germany, yep. I mean. But you've also and then you've got the and then you've got the auto factor in there mm. as well, um, which was which was in some ways idiosyncratic to the German auto sector last year because of the the diesel story. But again, we've talked about this incredible slowdown in the German auto in the Chinese auto market, and again. That's how the link gets established. But that's not just confined to Germany and China. It's if you look at Ford and their European operation and the fact they are now mulling a partnership with VW yep. to try and bear down on costs. Ultimately, the, the car market as is and has been for the past five years is changing beyond all recognition. You've got yeah. the diesel scandal, the emission scandal. You've got electric cars. And the established car makers are really behind the curve. Do you know what's really interesting to me right now, and it, it sort of applies sector to sector, near-term visibility has really diminished, Mike. It's diminished somewhat for Apple, seemingly, who didn't have a clue what was about to happen in China the, through November and into December. Apparently for Citigroup five weeks ago, they gave some guidance on the markets business and they 
pulled guidance in and still they didn't pull it in enough. Mm. So from sector to sector, just going into the end of, and picking up on this theme that you point out, Guy, going into the end of 2018, there just seems to be very little visibility for some big companies across various sectors. So what I think is interesting as well today, John, is you take a look at the Continental story. So Conti is the second biggest supplier, um, tier one supplier for the auto industry. Massive company, makes tires, makes all kinds of things. Low exposure is diesel, which is kind of worth bearing in mind. But nevertheless, today the stock went up on what was a pretty grim set of numbers and a pretty poor outlook. And I just wonder how much of all this bad news is now priced in, though. Um, and I think today may have been an interesting kind of line in the sand, particularly for the European automakers who have been absolutely smashed lower. And I think the back end of last year was really bad, but I think the market kind of priced a lot of that in. What do you think, Mike? You think that I think, well, Continental is probably lowballing quite deliberately, trying to get yep. its bad news out there right in front so that if things do go bad, um, but it's already the, had two downgrades last year. It yeah. already came. It already came out and 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 smashed its numbers lower at that point. So, kind of, have we got to the end of that point? Is I guess what I'm trying to make is the point that I'm trying to make. I think that's I think that's very hard to say because, you know, we we've talked about the changes in the car sector. You've got Jaguar Land Rover also cutting jobs. Ford are cutting jobs. Really, it's down to consumer demand and consumer demand for cars over the course of the past five years has a thing also been artificially driven by um, PCP, is it PCP? Um, yep. And um, but it was in the UK. Yeah, and cash, 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 for, cash for scrap and what have you. So if you've got a slowdown in global growth, you've got consumers yeah. who are very, well, are more price sensitive than they used to be, then is there going to be the same amount of demand for cars in the yeah, next okay. five years? than there was in the last five years. GM came out with a tiny bit of good news the other day and the stock really popped. John? Guy Johnson, over in London, myself, Jonathan Farrow here in New York. A special thanks to Michael Hewson on a really fascinating couple of days, fascinating year so far in the early part of 2019. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. It is half past the hour, half past five. Uh, European markets finishing softer when it comes to equities. FTSE 100 down nine-tenths of 1%. The DAX, interestingly enough, considering the very weak data we had out in terms of industrial numbers out of Europe uh, and the Chinese data actually only finished down by uh, three-tenths of 1%. Uh, and all of those markets rallied during the auction process. U.S. markets are down. Uh, 25.85 is where the uh, S&P is currently trading. Uh, City, the big news out of the United States. So John Farrow's uh, over in New York, and I'm assuming he's with Charlie Pellet. Judging by the rustling of papers that I can hear, <laughs> he's going to bring us the uh, he's going to bring us the big headlines. Uh, broadcast 101. You keep it quiet in the studio. Happy birthday Monday to you, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Let's begin with Citigroup bank earnings underway in the United States. We'll have more coming up. But this morning we did hear from Citigroup shares are pushing higher. Higher up by about three and a half percent. Citigroup offering some hope that the worst is over for its bond trading business after the toughest quarter for that unit in seven years. Deal making on in the gold industry. Newmont, Newmont Mining buying rival Gold Corp in a deal valued at ten billion dollars, creating the world's largest gold miner and cementing a return of M and A 
to the industry. And in the United States, that partial government shutdown continues. It is now in its fourth week, and it is delaying Fiat Chrysler's efforts to bring new heavy-duty Ram pickups to the market. Fiat Chrysler CEO Mike Manley says the Ram 3500 still needs certifications from the American Environmental Protection Agency to be approved for sale, and that process being held up by the shutdown. Latest from the news desk, back to you. Thank you very much, Charlie Pallet. The government shutdown then rolling into day 24. A record 24 days we've had a partial government shutdown in Washington, D.C. Senator Lindsey Graham says if a deal can't be reached, the president should declare a national emergency. President Trump told reporters today he wants the problem to be solved, not delayed. I have the absolute legal right to call it, but I'm not looking to do that because this is too simple. The Democrats should say we want border security, we have to build a wall, otherwise you can't have border security and we should get on with our lives. President of the United States there shortly before he got on Marine One to head to Joint Base Andrews on his way down to Louisiana. I think he was speaking to the Farm Bureau uh, today, Guy. So here we are, day 24, and here we are once again with pretty much no end in sight. And what does that do in terms of changing the narrative in the United States? And what does it do in terms of changing the narrative around the trade story as well? Because the longer this goes on... My my assessment seems to be, judging by the papers that I read over the weekend, the polls are turning against Trump. They are. So what does he need to do to get a win right now? I don't know, but the interesting thing about the polls, so for The Economist, and we've all heard this story, that usually after the economy gets hit by a government shutdown, you get a lot of give back and the economy recovers and there's no lasting damage and everything's okay. We're speaking to an analyst today, I think from Chatham House, and what was interesting from her perspective on the shutdown on the polls guy is that the presidential polls improve and also recover after the government has reopened. So even though he might be losing in the port of public opinion in the polls right now, it doesn't necessarily damage him over a longer period of time. So that's worth considering in all of this as well. So I guess the other question, guys, what does this actually mean to markets, if the polls recover for the president, if the economy recovers to the pre- for the president, what are we achieving here and how does this reshape the narrative as you put it? Luke Coward joining us, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, dropping by. Luke, what are your thoughts on all of this? I ask a lot of investors, do you care? They're like, kinder. Uh, I said, does it matter? They're not really, not yet. So when? So to, to the extent that investors care, I, I think it's this idea that, you know, we talk about record shutdown, been going on for a while. It doesn't look like there's much uh, wiggle room on either side that they're, you know, at least publicly, that they're really working towards. So what it comes down to is people are imagining, okay, for this to end, something very bad has to happen. That brings one side or another to its senses. And that bad thing will be the thing the market cares about. So it's not necessarily the shutdown, but rather that the catalyst you know, needed to end it seems like it would have to be uh, something that would be received negatively by stocks. That's the only way I really see people caring about it. Um. In terms of the duration, Luke, we're already into kind of record territory, but it's only a partial government shutdown, as you've kind of pointed out. Is is there a is there a duration story here? I give this. How long can the government carry on like this? Hey, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't like to figure out, but I can tell you personal experience and uh, from some buddies, TSA hasn't been nearly as bad as as I would have thought, given all the given all the headlines on that front. 
So I'm flying out next weekend, and I'm hoping that it's not going to be. There are some fears that the TSA officials will just start pulling sick days, Luke, and not turning up. And I guess what Guy and I have spent a lot of the last two weeks exploring is the bite point, the tension point that pushes this to get sorted out. If it's not the polls, where is it? Does it come from the lines at TSA at the airport? Does it come from the people who don't get a paycheck? Where does it come from? Where does the tension, the pressure build? I mean, I don't I don't think airlines, if only because are people not used to having a really bad time at the airport, like getting that exacerbated True. by, a, I, I don't see that being a really meaningful uh, turn of the needle. Uh, however, you know, there are a lot of public employees. There is a lot of spending associated with that. There is a lot of, you know, activity that is linked to that that people might not necessarily know uh, exists, but it does. And, you know, to the extent that that, drags on to the extent that they, you know, as I would be probably unwilling to to work for no pay for an extended period of time to an extent that those services go missing, people start to notice. But the worry is it has to be much worse. Luke, what I do hear, though, um, from a number of investors is that there is a there is a growing belief that the the U.S. consumer will be affected by this purely from a sentiment point of view. At the moment, everything's very good. A lot of U.S. Um, workers are employed. They are workers. They are in the labor force. And as a result of which, theoretically, life should be pretty good right now. Now, that obviously depends on kind of how much they're earning for those jobs and how many hours they're going to have to put in. But nevertheless, kind of relative to history, this is a time of reasonably full employment. But But like markets, consumers are to a certain extent discounting mechanisms. They look forward. They worry about what is coming down the pike towards them. We've talked already in this show about kind of what's happening in the auto sector could already be in recession effectively. Is the U.S. consumer kind of just – is this just one other factor that the U.S. consumer is looking at and going, is this, is this as good as it gets? I, I mean, I think in terms of the combination of the timing, having government shut down right on the heels of a, you know – pretty tumultuous month for equity markets that's a bit of a double whammy to confidence that you you would think would hit spending activity with a lag however i, ju- I just can't get over this idea that you know uh, look at average e- uh, aggregate weekly earnings growth among you know your average u.s worker it's up over five uh for the u.s economy as a whole up over five percent year over year that's you know that's sufficient spending power that even if we're off the boil you know there's there's still a lot of good there uh, the u.s economy is still looking okay and some people would say it's still looking really good you look at the labor market someone pointed out to me quite recently they sent me an email with a chart and said look there are still more job openings than there are unemployed uh for a significantly long period now luke this labor market still looks good Still looks good, and I I continue to think that recession worries are something that might help the labor market in the short term. If you're a company right now looking to boost demand to meet you know an unexpected uptick, you're not going to do it with capex. If you're worried about end of cycle, you're going to try and use the most flexible input available. Luke Cowan, cross asset reporter at Bloomberg News, will be sticking with us next up on the program. Earnings season kicks off here in New York. We started with City; it wasn't pretty. We moved to J.P. Morgan and Wells. That comes up tomorrow. Add in the soft data from China and the ugly eurozone industrial production data to close out some of last year, and it doesn't look good for markets either. In London, we do close lower this Monday morning. Equities softer by about nine tenths of one percent this Monday evening, I should say. In the United States. States after three weeks of gains, the longest weekly winning streak since August of last year. We are a little bit softer this Monday by about four tenths of one percent. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
Uh, good evening. It is uh, 5.40 in the city of London. We are talking about what's happening in these markets. We've got a busy 24-hour period coming up. John said uh, before the break, earnings season has already kicked off. Uh, we've had City out with numbers. We get JP Morgan tomorrow. That's going to be fascinating. Uh, we also get the big Brexit vote uh, as well coming through tomorrow. But the earnings season has started in interesting form. Um, Luke, why did, why did City bounce? I'm much less focused on the the why of the city bounce. Like, I think Matt Levine had something a while ago going through Bank of America's earnings, showing why this is all you know the quarterly examination of banks is just you know one big sleight of hand, and it's very hard to learn anything. What I care about is just merely that they bounced. I I care about whether this earnings season is going to be a story of trying to find the fly in the ointment with regards to the forward outlook or one thing in the earnings that doesn't appear that great or whether it's going to be a story of, hey, we really thought things were very bad. Things are not nearly as bad as they thought. So going into the numbers, and I want to try and maintain the narrative through the price action and not just kind of set it for what happened afterwards. But going into the numbers, the outlook for many people were capital markets bad, Loan growth, let's see if loan growth and the vanilla banking story offsets some of what has happened with capital markets. And I think the good news coming out of these numbers from City wasn't the loan growth, really. The loan growth and the vanilla banking type stuff was okay. Uh, the capital markets business was always going to get a hit at the end of the fourth quarter. It was just to what degree would it get smashed about. Turns out got smashed about a whole lot more than they thought they would get hit. And many other analysts thought so as well. Is that the good news going into 19? that the vanilla banking situation, the loan growth is still okay? Uh, both that and the idea that, you know, this bad volatility has passed And for didn't the spill into Q1, which was the guidance we got yes. on the call from the bank. Yeah, I, I think that if you're if you're going to look for something to like fundamental to kind of put your hat on, although it doesn't really work out with the timing of the ba- of the of the bounce, it would be, you know, this idea that you've turned a corner on all of the the bad things you thought and that there's going to be some kind of uh, catch up on the capital market side. What does it tell us about the wider U.S. economy? Uh, study as she goes. I think I, from retail to banks, I think the the big story of this earnings season will be essentially that Q4 in the markets versus Q4 in the economy were two incredibly different yep. things. And even throughout economy, we know that uh, on a quarterly basis, financial markets and the economy might not uh, match up. But Q4 financial performance. Uh, for companies versus Q4 financial performance in stocks is wildly different thing to the extent that that is you know sufficient to boost risk appetite, uh, get people to you know buy back into stocks that they might have ditched. That that's kind of what I'm wrestling with going forward. Consensus overweight on the financials again, again, and, and this time and this time it sounds better because the valuation is better. But like, so this, I'm is told. Across, this is almost across the board. There's essentially, if you look at 2019 outlooks, they're averaging down into your 2018 favorites, and a lot of them so far are paying off from the from a short U.S. dollar call to you know again over overweight on the banks. And it's not only the banks that have been outperforming out of the out of the gate this year. It's also been that U.S. U.S. housing home builders. So when you get two interest rate sensitive segments that are sensitive in different ways and they're both outperforming well what do they have in common linked to the u.s economy so this idea that we were pricing in recession and now we're not anymore that's that's the way i like to look at it feeding through on the sector level but your sense is more broadly that today's bounce is indicative of a market that wants to be positive positive on this earnings season rather than negative on this earnings season 
both both with regards to earnings and both this is also continuing a trend that uh, we've we've got a nice piece on the terminal. I'll, I'll give myself some promo here. Just looking at how the tenor of the market has changed intraday from December. Uh, you know, from the start of December till Christmas Eve, you had you know pretty much flat overnight, and then the big damage came during the U.S. trading day. Now, since then, we've still been a little down overnight. But we're recovering a lot during the U.S. trading day. When people in the U.S. come, they're buying. That's something new. Yep. It wasn't what we had at the back end of last year, that's for sure. Luke Cower, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, sticking with us. Next up on the program, we'll run you through the week ahead. Some economic data that you will get, some economic data that you will not get because of the partial government shutdown, and a ton of Fed speak and plenty more earnings coming right up. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio alongside Guy Johnson, birthday boy in the city. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York. Coming up through the rest of this week, Tuesday, a look out for JP Morgan and Wells Fargo reporting Q4 earnings. As for the politics... The UK Parliament voting on the Brexit deal. As for the data, the US PPI data will be out and the Eurozone trade balance as well. So that's Tuesday wrapped up for you. Going into Wednesday, more bank earnings in America, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs reporting in the UK, CPI in the US. You might get retail sales if the government reopens. Otherwise, you ain't getting them. Thursday, Morgan Stanley, Q4 earnings coming up alongside Netflix too. So Thursday's going to be interesting. You get a flavor, a taste of tech as well. U.S. jobless claims the data to look out for as well. A really good real-time indicator of the health of the U.S. economy at a time when many people are questioning just to what degree that slowdown in Europe, in China, will spill into the U.S. economy. So on Friday, to wrap things up, another big U.K. data point, U.K. retail sales. Look out for that, 9.30 in the morning. As always, the ECB current account coming as well. And on the US side, you might get industrial production and consumer sentiment too. Luke Cowell, I don't know if industrial production or consumer sentiment is impacted by the partial government shutdown. I am told that retail sales is. So I know that we've got a week of kind of distorted, perhaps weather impaired data sets as well because of the weather down in Washington, D.C. Yeah, not only that, also your your tick, your long-term treasury flow is also delayed too. So that's a, that's a fun one for people who like to watch just the, the international movements of capital and, you know, who's going where yeah. in terms of positioning. That's also on the on the delay. And Guy, as Michael McKee and I were talking earlier on on Bloomberg Radio this morning, it's not as if they have the data and they're sitting on it. So when the partial government shutdown is over, they'll release the data. Yeah. They just haven't been collecting it. So what does that do? I, so you're an economist and you're trying to build an economic model and you're trying to and, and you've got this economic these are incredibly complex things these are people that speak excel um and these are kind of things that you learn at business school and they're they're they're, they're kind of really complicated processes how do those models get affected now i it, you probably know more about this than 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 i do but if you are an economist and you've got a model and you just don't have the data inputs how much does that model get thrown off well, there's, I mean, no model is a function of any kind of one input, and you know the the idea but a that gap in the so, whole data so, series. So a gap in the whole data series does hurt. But uh, what I think you're doing is, you know, placing more weight on alternative indicators that are also 
in your in your field of vision that aren't being delayed. For instance, uh, when it comes to U.S. retail sales, we still have the Red Book kind of same store sales for the U.S. that is is coming out on a weekly basis, and you know that shows same store sales up nine percent year over year in the week is our is our latest reading of that. So I yeah. you'll kind of use just whatever inputs you have. It'll be a combination of your expected labor market contribution, your expected pay contribution, and then you know working with what related indicators you have. This for me is where you can draw a pretty clear distinction between who's an economist and who's a trader if you ask the economist what data they want they just want everything if you ask the trader for a list of economic data points they want out of the united states i'm just going to go through them now they want the labor market data they want payrolls they want the high frequency stuff they want initial jobless claims they want the isms they want the inflation data cpi ppi they want all of these things they're going to get them this for me is the first time we actually get a data point that most traders would like to see and won't have, and that's retail sales. Everything else, I think for the most part, so long as I have ISMs, yep. I have the inflation data, I have all the data on the labor market, I'm okay. But we do, I think, for the traders this time, Luke, we get a bit of a blind spot for them. Retail sales is a market-moving data point here in the United States. And, and especially with... I think they were more positive than not, but especially with kind of mixed results on the the retail field in terms of announcements uh, and uh, kind of guidance that we've had so far, it would be one area where I think people would like to see, uh, would like to be reassured if at all possible. But yeah, uh, too bad, not going to happen. So you're, you're going to have to look for it in, in other sources. And we don't even have, uh, from what I can see, a lot of retail focused uh, earnings on the docket this week, mainly mainly just financials and some industrials. So it uh, looks like we'll just be in the lurch for a bit. But this is interesting as well, John, because economists and traders are in very different places right now in terms of their view of the world. True. I, the the economists are, the, the the economists are looking at a much wider data set, and they're coming to a very different conclusion than the market is right now. Um. And I, and I still am scratching my head as to why. And it'll be interesting to see as we go through the shutdown with different bits of data missing, whether that narrative changes. It's it's amusing. I think that kind of recently, uh, in December, I think you could definitely say that economists and uh, traders were having different views. And just the fact that economists don't like to revise forecasts dramatically. They don't think the economy works like that and turns on a dime like that. But if you want to say, like, since from... Uh, Boxing Day through now, I'd I'd say it's largely been a story of traders starting to buy into economists' view of of the world, or at the very least, the U.S. economy. The data, or is it the other way around? Is it the market got ahead of the data that's about to come out? So, for instance, for China, for Europe, is this a market that did a really good job of pricing in the slowdown through 18 that was yet to appear in the economic data? I, I I throw my hands up at that. I th- I think one thing on the China side, it's I think it's a lot easier to make the argument that the market hasn't fully discounted China slowing. Okay. Because we have we have EM bottoming both on you know FX and uh, and on equities in September and October respectively, and I I don't think we had been seeing the worst of the China data slow down through that. We had that bottoming both outright and relative to the S&P 500. So the idea that maybe we got a little bit ahead of pricing in the EM rebound, and in particular, pricing in meaningful Chinese stimulus that has not been coming, uh, that's something I sympathize with as a, as a very possible risk factor for markets right now. Luke Cow, it's been great to catch up with you as we kick off another really interesting trading week and we count you down to that really important vote tomorrow, Guy. What are we looking for? What's the guidebook, the playbook for tomorrow afternoon? How much does Theresa May lose by? 
Um, I, there is all kinds of shenanigans that are going to happen with um, with amendments and what ultimately uh, the MPs end up voting on is something to certainly pay attention to. But let's assume that we do get a vote tomorrow, John, uh, on Theresa May's um, exit transition deal. Um, I, I think how much she loses by is the critical number. If it's under 100, uh, then maybe there's a chance that she comes back with some sort of tweaked version. But we will have to wait and see. The vote is expected to start at 7 p.m. London time. Uh, that is 2 p.m. in the United States. And we'll certainly uh, have the potential to be market moving. This is The Cable from John Farrow in New York, from Guy Johnson in London, from Luke Carr in New York as well. Thank you very much indeed for listening.